Well, it's my honor today to continue this series in the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians asks a really interesting question of us. How now shall we live? I'm reminded of when Sarah and I first found out we were pregnant. We were, uh, it was one of those moments where people react differently when you find out you're expecting your first child. And uh, you go up to some people and they find out you're pregnant and they're like, oh my goodness, this is such a great day for you. This is amazing. Everything's going to change. The world's going to be a better place and all this kind of thing. And then you go up to another person, usually a 40-year-old man with deep bags under his eyes and about four screaming children. And you, he, he grabs you by the shirt, looks you in the eye and says, everything's about to change. Everything. And when that happened to me, I, I th- said to Sarah, not for us, sweetheart. We're going to be different, maybe for everybody else. But when we have children, our lives are still going to be great. You see, Sarah and I love going to the beach. We love the beach. I, when I go to the beach, uh, I, I'm the kind of guy, I'm a bit of a nerd. I take four or five books with me, and I like read a chapter this one, read a chapter that one, pontificate on life, pray to God, you know, look at my beautiful wife and enjoy it. And I said, when we have a child, they will not change the beach for us. This will still happen. Then Archer came along. Archer's about 18 months old now, but I remember the first couple times we took him to the beach. I still took books with me, and I thought, I'm not going to change, son. You will change. That's how this will work. And it only took like the first couple times, I would try to read my books, and then I'd realize that Archer thought sand was maybe the sixth food group, and and it kind of stressed me out going to the beach. I didn't enjoy it, because my way of life and the way of life he wanted were two different things. I was like, ah, this is frustrating. I hated going to the beach. I hated reading books. I loved my son, but he, he kind of brought this new frustrating reality. So we stopped going to the beach until I worked out, what if I changed? What if I changed what I expected from the beach? And so now, just this last week, we go to the beach three to four times a week. Friends, I no longer take books with me at all. I don't even know what it feels like to read a book on the beach anymore. But instead, I take a, a spade and a bucket. We take balls. And, and I have the best time. It's amazing. I love going to the beach with my son because he has fun. I have fun. He does this thing where he, like, he doesn't know he can't swim. So he just like runs into the waves. And even when the waves are up here, he just keeps going. He thinks it's the best thing ever. I'm, I, like, I don't let him keep going. I save him just for all those playing at home. But there's this, um, there's this beautiful moment there where I love it. Now, here's what in, what's interesting. When I clung to my old way of life, I wasn't able to enjoy the new one because I was so adamant that I knew the better way forward. Now, when... He came along and I changed my old way of life and I clung to the new way of life. Suddenly there was freshness, there was hope. And this, friends, is a little bit like what it means when we come to Christianity. Some of us have become Christians and are walking with God and we're still clinging to an old way of life. We're still clinging to who we were and Jesus is an add-on and we're wondering why Christianity is so tiring, why it's so difficult, why it's so hard. It's because Jesus didn't come to make your old life better. He came to make your old life new to offer a different way of life. And this is what the book of Ephesians is all about. This is why Scott talked about last week, this idea that that it's so pivotal. We understand who the one is that offers us life, that God the Father adopts us, that God the Son redeems us, and God the Holy Spirit seals us. It's amazing. If you didn't hear his sermon, go listen to Scott's sermon from last week. It will give beautiful context to where we're about to head. But ultimately, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church, not only because he's wanting to answer the question of how now shall we live? How do we enjoy the beach again? No, it's, it's better than that. He's actually starting with a more primary question. It's in whom do we believe? In whom do we believe is the first question we have to answer when we come to the understanding of how now are we meant to live? 
Friends, I don't know who you all are today or where you've all come from, but I know some of you are here for the first time in church wondering, can I know God? Can I know God? Or can I just listen to a you know, young 32-year-old guy rave about him for 20 minutes? Some of you are here today, and you've been in church for a while, and you actually know a lot about God. But if I asked you, do you know him? Do you know him? I wonder what you would say. Some of you have a hope that maybe there's more to Christianity than just being filled with knowledge. That it's actually deeper than that. And Paul agrees that no matter who you are today, you don't just have to know about God. You don't just get to know about God, but you get to know him in intimate relationship. If, if the first half of Ephesians chapter 1 was all about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Paul continues the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15, where he actually goes into a prayer, a beautiful prayer for the Ephesian church. And what I love about Paul is when he writes letters, he often lets the people know who he's writing to, hey, this is how I pray for you. This is what I pray. You should go up to Scott or Fernando or Ash or David one day and ask them this question, how do you pray for me? Because they do pray for this church every Monday morning. I think you'd be blessed to know the beauty of what they're praying for this gathered body of believers. This is what Paul does. He says, let me, let me tell you how I pray for you, church in Ephesus. This church which is facing persecution, facing trial, facing hardship. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Now, he's in the middle of a prison in the middle of Rome on his way to be executed, and Paul's not going, guys, could you just remember to pray for me? Life's a bit hard. He's going, I haven't stopped giving thanks to you. I'm so stoked. I love Paul's pastoral heart here. It's a beautiful understanding of what it means to become more like Christ. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does he ask? The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what? so that you may know him better. What does he not say? He doesn't say, so you can know about him. You might know a lot about Scott. You might know that he goes and surfs down at the beach. He's got two great kids, a lovely wife named Georgie, that he's the pastor's church. You can find all about that reading his Facebook. But it's different when you know Scott, when you've spoken to him about his surfing. And how much he doesn't get out there enough. And it laments. And it's, it's, a, it's a cry of his heart. You, you, unless you know how he feels about his two boys and how he loves them. You might know, he loves, know about his love for them. But do you know Scott? How do you get to know Scott? You converse. You spend time. This is what it means. That the spirit of wisdom and revelation. See, here's the fact, friends. You cannot know God by just learning more information about him. You must receive a revelation. And a revelation is when information goes from our head to being a reality we know in our heart. Something we've experienced to be true. So today, I'm going to tell you some things that Paul wants to remind us about God. About God. But knowing these things about God is not the same as knowing God. I'm hoping that these things pull you deeper into relationship with Him. Why is it so important that Paul prays, I want you to know Him better? Because you see, I believe there's no greater hope for humanity than to know God. We live in a world which says the greatest thing that you can achieve with your life is to know yourself. We live in a day and age where we're like, hey, do you know you? 
You can go online. You can do an Enneagram. Has anyone else done the Enneagram or is it just me? I'm a number three. Only Fernando knows what that's about. I'm a number three on the Enneagram. There's a Myers-Briggs. Has anyone else done the Myers-Briggs test? Some of you. I'm an INTJ, which is apparently Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, in case you're wondering. There's these... There's these senses where you can go and you can fill out a magazine and find out which color is your emotional health. And you're like, oh, my color's blue by answering a whole bunch of different questions. Why do we fill out these questionnaires? Because our heart is to know more about ourselves. But this is what happens. We live in a world which forces us to be introspective. It says, no, no you. But I don't know about you, but the more I get to know about myself, the less happy I become. <laughs> I don't know more about myself. I'm like, I'm pretty good. The more I know about myself, I'm like, I'm pretty broken. Holy smokes, I don't want to fill out another questionnaire. This is why I believe Paul's going, not know you better, know him better. J.I. Packer says in his great book, Knowing God, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Hear the claim of J.I. Packer. Maybe you say you don't know God. This is a man who gave his life to following Christ, who faced suffering, who faced hardship, who faced trial. He was not writing out of a vacuum of like a mansion with a nice Tesla in the driveway. That's not his story. J.I. Packer writes knowing the fullness of life's sufferings. And he says, guess what? If you knew God, life's hardships fall into their proper place. What an amazing, amazing idea. Friends, could it be that our worry and complaining and fear of life comes from a lack of intimacy and knowledge of God? In fact, I believe the Bible equation is that to know God is greater than to know thyself. What would it look like for our calendars, our lives, our rhythms to be based around the idea that we are called to know him deeper? What would it mean for you to step into a meeting and say, God, reveal yourself to me in this meeting. Where are you at work? When you're on your drive to work and you're listening to 612 ABC, shameless 612 ABC fan down the front, and you're like, God, what are you saying to me right now? How are you wanting me to process what the American politics are doing or what the stock market is doing? God, how can I know you deeper in this moment? What might change about our life if we recognize the greatest privilege is to know God? See, friends, this is why we're reading the Bible. We read the Bible not so we can just know more scripture. Leviticus on its own, let's be honest, it's a boring book. Those of you who laughed, you've read it. The rest of you are like, oh, is it? Trust me. It is. But when you read it in the context of a God who, as St. Augustine writes to us, these are love letters from home. You're like, God, show how yourself is, is being made known. And we realize Leviticus is God revealing his heart to make a way home for his wayward sheep. We're like, oh, beautiful. See, A.W. Tozer, you know it's a good sermon when you've got Packer and Tozer in the one. If you don't know who either of these guys are, do yourself a favor and find out. He says, I don't want the world to define God for me. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal God to me. Because here's the truth, friends. If you don't know God for yourself as an intimate revelation of who he is, the world will fill that gap for you. It will say, well, God is nothing but an autocratic old man up in the clouds who doesn't want you to have fun. It's nothing but a guy who's oppressive to sexuality, to freedom, to your money. He, there's an oppressive institution called the church, and the world defines God for us when we don't take the time to find out who God is for ourselves. Do you know God today? This is why Paul's praying, I pray you would know him better. What a prayer we should pray for each other. What a prayer to pray for yourself. What a prayer that we call out from the depths of our heart. Because you see, knowledge of God was pivotal to Jesus. He said in John, in John chapter 11, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my sheep. But then what does he say about his sheep? My sheep know me. Not about me. Know me. In fact, in the judgment, Jesus tells us there'll be two kinds of people. Those who Jesus goes, I know you. And those to Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. This stuff is not about information. It's about relationship. Friends, do you have a relationship where you know God intimately? Because here's what I believe. God isn't playing hide and seek. Sometimes we think that. That we're out there being like, Marco. And we're listening to the Holy Spirit going, Paulo. There he is. That's not what God is doing. And we know that because that's why Jesus was sent to earth. Not because God wanted to hide himself from us, but because he wanted to reveal himself fully to us. Jesus, the more you know about Jesus, the more love you fall with God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, this great theologian, and fitting for today, um, of, uh, named T.F. Torrance, who was actually a chaplain from World War II, was sitting beside the, the bed of a man who was dying. And in the last moments, he says to the theologian, he says, Padre, is Jesus really God? Is this an accurate picture of who God actually is? And Torrance says, in this moment, you see the cry of the human heart. On the precipice of death itself, the longing was not for anything else but to know, could I trust this person who I've come to know? Will that be who I see on the other side of this? And he says, oh, my friend, if you want to know the Father, just look at the Son. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. He's the full revelation of who God is. This is why Paul spends so much time meditating on Jesus. When was the last time you were enraptured by the profound nature of Jesus? I've been challenged by this. When was the last time growing up in the church for me when you stood back and you're like, oh my goodness, Jesus, you are worthy. You are high, you are lifted up, and yet you are closer than my next breath by the power of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you were, we should come to church praying, God, give me a fresh revelation of you today. Let me know who you are because the Holy Spirit is present with us and that is his longing. That you don't walk out of here going, it's a nice service, I guess. Let's go get a coffee. But you walk out going, I am encouraged. I understand. I've gone deeper again in knowing who God is. That's Paul's prayer today. And there are three things Paul unpacks where he starts to say, you want to, you want to know what I would love you to know about Jesus? He unpacks this beautifully. He says this in the next part of, the, of Ephesians. He prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you know three things. That you may know the hope. Everyone say hope. We can do better than that. Everyone say hope. hope. Hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Inheritance. In his holy people and his incomparably great power. Say power. For us who believe. He says three things. I want you to know. The, I want you to know the hope. I want you to know the glorious nature of the inheritance for you. And I want you to know that you have incomparably great power. Now, these are just words for us. But to finish today, what I want to do is explain why they're so pivotal for, for, uh, why they're so pivotal for Paul. Paul says this, I want you to know the hope that you have been called to. Do you know the hope, friends? When you hear the word hope, what do you think? When we use the word hope in everyday vernacular, this is the kind of things we say. Well, I hope the preacher doesn't go for too long today. What you're really saying there is, fingers crossed, Michael shuts up before nine. That's what we're really saying. When we're saying, hey, I hope the coffee's good, what you're really going is, 
man, please don't burn my coffee. You don't know. We're actually using hope out of the wrong context. Hope isn't wishful fulfillment, friends. Hope isn't this idea of like, I'm hoping I'll win the lotto. No, that's, that's, that's like, hey, I wish that I win the lotto. Good luck to that if that's where you're at. Hope, actually in a biblical context, is joyful certainty. Hope is joyful certainty. And Christians need to reclaim the meaning of hope. When Jesus says, I want, when Paul writes, I want you to know the hope, he's saying, I want you to know certainty of what it means to be a Christian. Friends, is what you're hoping in certain? Is what you're hoping in certain? Because in, 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 in this understanding, here's well, I would, how I explain hope. Hope is the certainty that you have about the future that pulls you through the pain of the present. Hope is the certainty you have about the future that pulls you. Friends, I know some of you are coming here today and the world is not okay for you. It's hard. And, and let's just be honest, that seems to be more of my life than happy times. My life seems to be filled with more hardship than this sense of daffodils and easy fields. So you're like, why is daffodils with good times? I don't know. That's just how I picture goodness. And, and, and some of you aren't in that moment. Paul is not saying, hey, I pray you know good times. He's saying, in the midst of uncertainty, I pray you would know hope. If you know, if in the early church, there was a symbol painted on all these buildings of an anchor. And if you go back to a lot of ancient buildings, you see the anchor painted in symbolism of the early church. It was one of the three most important symbols to the early church. And they would paint an anchor everywhere because anchor was the symbol of hope. If you know anything about anchors, you know it's probably one of the most important purchases you make on a boat. Because you can have a great boat, but then if you go to dock somewhere or you want to sleep for the night, you don't have an anchor, you're lost. If a storm comes along and you don't have an anchor, then you are at the mercy of the changing tides. It's just a bottle. thought it was my iPad there for a moment. Thanks for amening that, Fernando. He amends that, but not Jesus. I don't know what's going on down the front. And there's this moment, right, where the anchor is the most important part. Why is this the case? Because you see, friends, when you understand the power of an anchor, an anchor holds onto the ship, a small thing holds onto the ship so that the ship stays where it's meant to stay. And the early Christians believed that Jesus was the anchor of their souls. This is why in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, we have this anchor as a hope for our soul. How do you know the worth of an anchor? The strength of an anchor is known by something as its holding power. The bigger the anchor, the greater the holding power. And the idea is the bigger the boat, the bigger the anchor you will need. And so the question you have to ask is, what is the holding power of what you have hope in right now? We hope in holidays. That pulls us through the pain of the present, right? We hope in holidays. But then we get to holidays, and if you have a kid, you realize, oh my goodness, holidays are no longer peaceful. <laughs> and so your holding power starts, except for you guys, your parents love holidays with you. There's this sense where, where your holding power, your holiday, it gets weaker, right? It gets weaker. There's our hope in romance. We hope in, in money. We hope in these things. If this happens, man, I'm, my life's going to be great. And then it happens, and your life doesn't get any better. That's why he's saying, oh, pray you know the hope that you've been called to. He's actually encouraging us. Do you know the strength of the anchor of the call of Jesus Christ? Do you know what it means for us to have our hope in Christ? 
who is the only anchor that when we allow him not to hold on to him, but we allow him to hold on to us and anchor himself in the truth of the word and the certainty of the gospel, no matter what storm comes along your life, you know your anchor has the greatest holding power of all. What is the hope that we have? That when Jesus died on the cross and was raised again on the third day, that he, it meant that everything he promised us was true. That our current storm will not last. That the night is darkest right before the dawn. That because the sun raises again, not even death itself can have claim over our life. That we have a hope, which is the anchor for our souls, friends. And that no matter how bad our life must get, nothing will sway us from knowing that God is the anchor of my soul. What is the strength of your anchor today? Do you know God? Do you know that He is the hope we have which anchors our soul? Because you see, friends, this kind of hope is dangerous. Why? Because nothing in this world can steal it away from you. Nothing in this world can shift it. Nothing in this world can take it unless we let it. When you have hope in something greater than this world, it is a dangerous thing because no culture, no storm, no pain, no suffering will shift the ship of your life as long as you allow Christ to hold you to the anchor of the hope we have in Him. This is what it means. But then we go, okay, well, what is, help me understand this hope. So Paul's like, oh, you want to know what part of the hope is? There is a glorious inheritance awaiting for you. There is a glorious inheritance awaiting for you. And in my experience, what I've found in Christians is that we have a really weak, what we call eschatology. It's a fun word to say. Everyone say eschatology. What does eschatology mean? It means what will happen at the end of all things. And Christians have a really weak eschatology. We're like, oh, I guess like, like maybe Jesus is going to come back. Maybe. I'm not quite sure. I think I saw a movie once where people just disappeared and all their clothes were left behind. Like that seemed pretty cool. I'm, I'm in that. And we have a weak eschatology. And what that means is what we believe about our future will define how we live in our present. See, when Scott preached last week, he would have preached on this verse which said that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. What this is meaning is that you are actually spiritual billionaires but we're acting as if we're in spiritual poverty. Timothy Keller has a great, has a great line where he, he, he kind of says, if you had three $10 bills and you're a billionaire, right? So you're a billionaire, so you just carry around three $10 bills because you can, pre-COVID. No one does it anymore. And you go catch a taxi. The cat taxi takes you somewhere. And the taxi driver says, give me one $10 bill. You do. You hop out of the car and you go walking and you pull out your money. You find you've only got one $10 bill left. You start to think, oh no, I must have given him two $10 bills. Now, as a billionaire, how worried are you going to be about that? You're not going to be like, oh, no, where's the taxi driver? He stole my second $10 bill. This is horrible. You're going to be like, that's all right. There's more where that came from. We're good. And Timothy Keller starts to say, but Christians act like those three $10 bills are everything. When we have an amazing inheritance awaiting for us, when someone speaks badly about us, we're like, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. And yet we have the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who is our father, our older brother, standing and saying, you are loved, you are home, you are belonging in my family. And we're acting like in spiritual poverty. We're actually, we're meant to be living like spiritual billionaires. We're like, you've got to wait until the inheritance that's coming for me. You want to criticize me? That's fine. You want me to walk through suffering or pain at work? That's okay. You don't know my worth is not tied up here because what is coming for me is greater than anything you could offer. What is the inheritance we have in Christ Jesus? The Bible tells us, friends, that one day we will inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, the meek will inherit the earth. 
And there's a sense that one day God is going to restore all things and he will invite us once again to play in perfect unity with him. You think sunsets are beautiful now? Wait until the restored heavens and the restored earth, friends. It says in the Bible that we will have new bodies. Some of you are like, praise God. I'm looking at some of you, I'm like, praise God. No, I'm kidding. That's horrible. Sorry, Scott. We'll pray afterwards. Some of you are looking at me like, you can't talk, dad bod. That's true. Anyway, and you're like, we'll have new bodies, which means that there will come a day where you will have a new body that will not decay, that will not weary. That friends, if you've got aching bones, I'm going to a physio down in Coolangatta at the moment because I've got a bad back and I'm, I'm getting treated by this massage therapist and it hurts, but I know one day it will not hurt anymore. One day there will be a new body. I cling to that hope. So friends, you can take that $10 bill of my bad back because one day, oh my gosh, I will not worry me anymore. You know the greatest thing we inherit is eternal relationship with the Father in heaven. That one day you will have a father who will never leave you, never forsake you, never walk out on you. This is the glorious inheritance. And here's the truth, friends. We need to spend more time meditating on the hope we have, the inheritance that's coming for us, so that we can walk with joy through our day. Not because life is easy, but because this life is not the end. Friend, how joyful is the certainty you bring to your world right now? Now, here's the truth. Just by listening to a sermon... It's not going to change your joy. This isn't more information for you unless you pray for it to become God's revelation in you. It's just more information. Only the Holy Spirit can make this alive and real in us, which is why Paul says, I pray for a revelation to come upon every one of us. And we're like, well, Michael, what's the proof that there is a hope? What's the proof that we get an inheritance? And Paul, who is the beautiful arguer, knows this. Friends, you want to know the hope? You want to know the glorious nature of your inheritance? Then you must be reminded that great is the power that rests in those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we're like, power? The word power in, in, the, in the Bible is the Greek word dunamis, the same word we get dynamite from, the same word that comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, wait for me, and power will come upon you, and you will be sent into the world. That power, that word dunamis, it's the Holy Spirit. And Paul says to the Ephesian church, I pray you would know. He doesn't say the bits of power that you get. What's the word that he uses? The incomparably great power. Think of the most powerful thing in your world right now. It can't be compared to the power that Jesus Christ has in you. Think of atomic power, nuclear power. Pales in comparison. Because it's incomparably great power that Christ Jesus rests in you. Where do we see the evidence of this power? Paul goes and he says to us, the same power as the mighty strength he, he exerted when he, what? he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Friends, this is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a nice piece of story for us. It's the hinge point of humanity. That if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it changes everything. Because dead people don't come back to life. Not of their own accord. That just doesn't happen. And it should be one of the things that actually confuses us the most as Christians. And we should work out, do you actually believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Because if so, what cannot be done by our Lord Father in heaven? What cannot be done by Jesus Christ our Lord? And the same power that raised Christ from the dead rests in you. But it didn't just stop there. It raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul goes on and he goes, and now he is seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I read in the news this morning, Australia should be very afraid 
because China's not happy. That might be true. But friends, no matter what kingdom comes against us in this world, here's what I know. I have a greater king who sits on a greater throne that no matter what enemy or what opposition Australia or America or China may face in their world, that there is a king who all power and all authority has come to subjection under and they are just fighting time until they realize it for themselves. That is the proof of the power. And then he goes on more than that. He says, you want to know where else you might find my power? And this is a great truth. He says, and God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. What is the church? It's his body. The fullness, the fullness of him fills everything in every way. You know how the world comes to know the power of Jesus Christ? By looking at the church. Because we are meant, we're not always, but we're meant to be the fullness of Christ's presence in this world. See, the world needs to know a greater hope. The world needs to know that there is a glorious inheritance available to those who know Christ Jesus. The world needs to know there is a power available. But what we do is we just flick it on on Sundays. And there's this great story of a lady in Ireland who uh, in the turn of the century, power uh, was given to her house. So she got electricity for the first time. They put up a power meter. They said, we'll be back in a month to see how much power you've used. They came back to this old lady's house in the middle of Ireland after a month. They checked the power meter. She used barely any at all. And they said to her, like, are you using the electricity? And she goes, wow, yeah, of course. Like when the sun goes down, I turn the lights on, I light the candles, and then I turn the lights off again. And they're like, you know that this is meant to replace the candles. She's like, what? That's kind of how we live as Christians. We step into church, we're like, Holy Spirit, you are present here with us. And then we leave and we're like, that was lovely. The body of Christ is not the body of Christ on Sundays. We're the body of Christ every day of the week. When you step into work tomorrow, hopefully not tomorrow unless you're getting paid triple time, there is a sense where you carry the very same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. That we are the body of Christ, that we are meant to live as a people who have hope. Man, you're going through a hard time right now, but you're joyful. Friends, I have a greater hope. My hope's not defined by my health, by my family, by my work, by my relationships. It's defined by my risen Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the inheritance I have in Him. You see how bad my body looks? Not forever. It's going to be great one day. You should be there. Do you see how when we know God, evangelism becomes easy? Because we just live what we believe. Friends, do you know Him today? Do you have a hope? Do you know the inheritance? Do you know, friends, there is a great power for all who would believe that raised Christ from the dead. And friends, we're just dipping our feet into it. Christ is like, jump into the deep end. So here's how I want to finish today. As we wrap up the service, I'd love to ask, boldly, because here's the thing, I can preach funny. Thank you for laughing. I can preach serious. We can do whatever we want, but it's just information. The only thing that will take this from information to revelation is the power of the Holy Spirit. So my question for you today is, do you know the hope? Do you know the inheritance? Do you know the power? And if not, why don't we pray for a fresh revelation from God right now? Why don't we ask God, I need a fresh revelation because I don't want to walk out of here the same. So I'm asking if you're not a Christian or even if you are, if you want a fresh revelation of God, 
to know Him, not just about Him, but to know Him today. I'm not going to bow your heads and raise your hands. Here's what I want to ask. Would you just stand wherever you are right now? If you want a fresh revelation of God's power, God's hope, and God's inheritance for you, would you stand wherever you are? I'm going to pray for us today. As Paul prayed for the church, I'm nothing like Paul. Fast martyr, way more holy than me. But we can join him in the prayer. Now, here's the thing. Just as you bow your heads and close your eyes. Don't stand today because someone next to you stood. Stand today because you are desperate to know God. To know God. And you need Him more than ever before, not as an idea, but as a living Savior, Lord, Father, King, and presence, power of the Holy Spirit. So if you want a fresh revelation today, I don't, it might happen right now. It might happen on your way home. It might happen this week. It might even be something like a small seed that sprouts and grows over time. We don't get to tell God how to work. We just get to ask Him. If that's you, you want that fresh revelation, would you just open your hands in front of you today? Jesus, we come before you right now. Lord, some of us do not know you. God, I pray in this moment, only you, Holy Spirit, can save. Only you can reveal. Reveal the divine power and love and grace you have for us. Make it real in Jesus' name. I just get a sense there's, a, there's someone here today who's a follower of Christ and uh, just Psalm 51 is coming to me. God wants to restore to you the joy of your salvation. You've forgotten it. You've forgotten it. God wants to reteach you again the joy of your salvation. Father, there's those of us who know you. We've been to church. We've done this thing right now. And, uh, and we're desperate. We need you more. So I ask in Jesus' name, Lord, pour out your power upon us. Reveal to us your goodness. You know, just in this moment, uh, I just get another sense we, we pause and we remember the Anzacs and we remember their sacrifice and we meditate on war but we get to this moment and, and we sometimes don't meditate on Christ right now if, that, if you're struggling with the revelation just say Jesus I want to meditate on you on the cross on the empty tomb on you on the throne reveal your nature to me again reveal it to me and crawl out to him from the depth of your heart so, Father, my prayer for us all today is that you would send a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better, that we might live as your people better in a world that needs to know the hope, know the inheritance, and know the power available to us in Christ Jesus. Come and finish the work you have begun. Continue it until completion.